And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Neil King Jr. earned a reputation as one of America's finest journalists during a career that spanned continents and decades. In 20 years at the Wall Street Journal, he covered post-Cold War Europe and later in Washington, terrorism, intelligence, and global economics. But a bout with a deadly cancer caused him to reorder his priorities, and a 330-mile walk from Washington, D.C. to New York City gave him new perspectives on his life and our country. It also gave root to a splendid new book, American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. I spoke with Neil King this week about that journey and the longer arc of his fascinating life. Here's that conversation. Neil King, it is great to see you, my friend, and we should stipulate right at the beginning that we are old friends, but you're not here just because you're my old friend. You're here because you wrote this magnificent book, American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. And it's an extraordinary book because we experience with you this 26-day walk you took, 330 miles from Washington, D.C. to New York City. And it was a, a walk laden with meaning, and we will, we will get to it. But as is our habit here, I have a few questions for you before we get to that. And I want to start with your family. You are a fourth-generation Coloradan. Don't live there anymore, but you're a fourth-generation Coloradan. Tell me about your family, because they're deeply embedded in the Rockies there. Yeah. Um, you know, my great-grandfather on my father's side, um, it's one of those interesting moments in American history when you're talking about the 1870s. He went to what became Northwestern Law School. Um, he headed west from um, a farm, basically, in, um, in Illinois and um, became a founder of a town, basically a town of Delta, which is on the western slope of um, the Rockies. And, um, you know, I went there years ago. You can see his initials on the original plat deeds when they laid out the town. And um, he was a kind of a town burger. Uh, he was the first mayor, one of the early mayors of that town. He became a judge. And um, he then went and was on the um, Colorado State um, Appeals Court. Court of Appeals, yeah. Yeah, Court of Appeals and um, Alfred Rufus King. Um, and my grandfather then was the dean of the Colorado School of Law at the University of Colorado for a long time. I think the longest serving uh, dean of, a law, of that law school. My dad was a lawyer in turn in Boulder, Colorado for years and years. Boulder City attorney at one point. He was. Well, you've done your homework. You know, I have uh, had four siblings, and none of us uh, were drawn to law. I was going to ask you about that. I don't know. I might have been the likeliest one to fall for the lure, but it just didn't really ever take hold, and my dad kind of applauded us for that. And we all kind of went our different ways, and none of us went into that direction, despite the fact that it had been in the family for multiple generations. And, um, you know, I, I'm the only one of, really, my family going back many, many generations to have succumbed to the lure to move east. Everything else in my family story, literally going back to the beginning when the folks first arrived on the continent has been always a eastward, sorry, a westward migration. All of my siblings either live now 
in Colorado or in San Francisco. And um, for whatever reason, I have lived most of my life either in Europe or in um, on the East Coast of the United States. So you can take the boy out of Colorado, but you can't take the Colorado out of the boy. This wanderlust of yours, it's not a, a revelation that came late in life. You were hiking and traveling from a very early age. I kind of joked that I, I got it. I graduated from high school and I sort of walked right off the platform with my diploma and just headed east and went straight to Europe, spent the whole year there. I ended up taking a year off between high school and college and traveled all over the place. I ended up in Alaska working on a fishing boat. And I, I was a fairly consummate hitchhiker back in the days before hitchhiking just you know went by the wayside entirely. And I'm one of the few folks around, I guess, at this point who can say that they literally hitchhike from one coast to the other all in one go. You know, since the days of Jack Kerouac, that's become a thing that nobody does anymore. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're the, you could write a, well, you mentioned some of it, in, but you can write a, a book just about those travels, uh, including a stint in a, essentially a monastery, a uh, Buddhist monastery. Yeah. Which is a odd place for a kids steeped in Catholicism mm. to land, but it didn't take, I guess, is that? Yeah, that was, I tell that story a little bit in the book that I ended up, I was in Sri Lanka and I, I was, I heard about a monastery there in this incredibly beautiful place in the middle of the island. And I, um, I went there and the monk said, okay, you can come join the monastery. And I, I had to get special outfit of clothing and give up, you know, leave everything behind. And I lasted about two and a half weeks until the uh, you know, the pressures of trying to think of nothing or whatever I was there to do kind of closed in on me, and I and I fled uh, further on my trip around the world. You must have been the tallest aspiring monk there. You know, the guy himself was the who the who was the head monk was actually from the Netherlands, so he wasn't exactly tiny. But uh, yeah, I, I think I did have that honor. You're you're a big dude. Yeah. How tall are you? About six five. Yeah. There you go. So, uh, and then you went back to Columbia University and you studied philosophy. I'm sure, as your dad and mom probably pointed out to you, an incredibly useful <laughs> degree. But then you decided to take up journalism. Why? You know, I'd always been essentially at heart a writer, and I just figured that the best way to be a writer and make a living at, at a, as a writer was to go into journalism. So I went to Northwestern Journalism School. And um, went off to Florida for my first job. Met your wife there, we should point out, my dear friend, Shayla Murray, another great journalist in her own right now. Absolutely. We were at Northwestern. We met there. And our journalism careers actually became almost identical until she left journalism to go into the White House because we both went to Florida. We had our jobs there. At the Tampa Tribune, right? Exactly. Yeah, which was a fantastic time in journalism. You know, all the crazy people that ended up in... Um, I mean, literally crazy people, serial killers, and every other kind of person that would end up in Florida in those days. And we got to cover it all. And then we um, we left there. We went overseas to Prague. And Don't gloss over this decision. You're two young reporters. I was a young reporter once. You had good jobs at a reputable newspaper. And you left. And you went to Eastern Europe, to Prague. And you had no, you had no jobs, right? You just this was a bet that you were making that you could somehow pick up your journalism careers in a place you've never been. It was exactly that. Yeah, we, you know, both of us decided that we were going to kind of 
make a big jump and that it would be too hard to sort of apply and work our ways overseas. It was, it was a fantastic time to be yeah. a foreign correspondent, you know. A few years after the uh, the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. So you were there at what was a really hopeful time. I tell people that it was the longest sustained good news story that any journalist could ever ask for. We ended up in Prague. The American public was so thirsty for news about the opening up of the Soviet Union and that whole sphere. And we just told stories for you. And you could travel without much danger to all these countries as we did and just sort of tell the myriad stories of a, of a region awakening. And it was a really fantastic stretch and an amazing time to be in Prague in the early 90s. So I have to take advantage of having you here and ask you to look back at that time because it really was a hopeful time, you know. Uh, everything seemed possible. Russia itself was opened up. There was a uh, sort of a nascent commitment to democracy, to capitalism, and so on. Tell me, as you look back, what was happening then that led to where we are now? Well, I mean, it's a, you know, that was an amazing time because we all, you know, America was astride the globe. Our model of life was so predominant. We had the, you know, peace dividend and all that sort of stuff that was coming our way, you know, domestically. But on the other hand, and we certainly see this now in, in Russia, that the privatization of the economy was a huge bonanza for the rich oligarch types who immediately began to take over. And it became not in all of those countries, but in much of them, particularly in Russia, just a huge kind of kleptocracy. And, you know, we saw the hopeful phase of that, but we also saw the beginning of the um, sour, dispiriting side of it as well. And how much were we responsible? How much was hubris on the part of the U.S. that we could simply install American-style capitalism, American-style democracy in places where they really, democracy didn't have deep roots. You know, I think we were, in, in, in not in large part, but we were definitely um, had a hand in all of that. I mean, the just throwing things up willy-nilly and the sense that capitalistic forces um, are such that they sort of create their own rationality over time you know, the invisible hand, so to speak. The invisible hand can also be a kleptocratic, uh, you know, pilfering yes. hand. Yes. So it, it doesn't always work so cleanly. And I don't see a lot of indications in some of these places, particularly Russia, that it's going to even out over time and become something that we would recognize as what we would have wanted to see happen there. That region obviously is an extraordinarily interesting region to cover today, but in an entirely different way. Yeah, it's much more dangerous um, today, obviously, for journalists. And in those days, I mean, I went many times to Russia and did stories that by today's standards would have gotten me, you know, thrown in jail, as is the case. Yeah, sadly, with a reporter from the Wall, your, the Wall Street Journal, which is a good segue for me, because after almost, what, a decade or so uh, in uh, Europe, is that what you spent? Yeah, so we had the great fortune when we were in Prague of actually um, being hired on first as stringers by the Wall Street Journal, and we became the Prague correspondent. Shayla and I both the Prague correspondents for the Wall Street Journal, and then we were hired on officially as reporters in '95, and we moved to Brussels, and we covered all kinds of things throughout the rest of that decade, and we basically missed most of the Clinton administration because we were outside of the country, mm -hmm. and then we came back to Washington as writers for the Wall Street Journal into the Washington Bureau right towards the end of the Clinton administration. 
You spent 17 years. That, uh, is that right? 17 years in the Washington Bureau there? Yeah. Yeah. They were quite amazing years. Yeah. And sorry, you, including 9-11, you, you were on the crew that covered 9-11 and, and won a Pulitzer Prize for your coverage. Of course, that was such an extraordinary moment that any of us around have witnessed it will never forget. But I was one of just two terrorism reporters, two national security reporters. So I actually had written the first profile of Osama bin Laden that had run in the Wall Street Journal in, I think, 99. And, you know, when those planes slammed into the World Trade Center towers, there were two of us that we didn't know instantaneously what was going on, but pretty quickly did. And um, then soon was it was it your instinct that this could be Bin Laden? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. I mean, it was clear the minute the second plane hit, as it was close clear to most of us that something big was afoot here. And um, I think it became immediately apparent that this was a Al Qaeda operation, and uh, you know that transformed my career and, of course, all of our lives. You ended up covering politics in addition to terrorism, politics, energy. Uh, foreign policy, intelligence, and global trade. You were the chief economic uh, uh, reporter for the global economic reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Twenty, uh, 20 years in total, 50 countries you traveled to, which fed your <laughs> crazy wanderlust. Why, why did you leave the journal? You know, it's funny in a way when I look back at my journalism career, I kind of feel like I've run out of a lot of burning buildings. I mean, I, we did the foreign correspondent thing when it was really in a lot of ways at its heyday, which was also pre-internet. We had a lot of liberty to roam, to do stories that might take a week or more. Um, you know, my time in Washington was also fantastic. I got to cover so many different things. I, I kind of just wanted to, to move beyond in a lot of ways and sort of um, look to what else was possible. And I think that I could fairly say that um, particularly in the last two years and, and, and in doing this walk that became the book, I have truly found um, in some ways what I was sort of destined to do all along. It's been, it's, I'm, I'm really glad that I jumped from traditional journalism and, and went about things differently. Was the Murdoch purchase of the journal a factor in your decision? Kind of yes and no. I mean, I do have to say, and I'm no Murdoch um, fan by a long shot, but you know, he helped save the journal in a lot of ways because the owners at that time um, weren't exactly the most creative force, and nor were they necessarily in a position to do much uh, creative with it. Um, but by the time I left, I wasn't terribly pleased by how they had covered the 2016 election. Um, it was not exactly even-handed, and um, there were a lot of things that were just sort of frustrating about the place at that point. So I left at the end of 2016. And you went to a firm called Fusion GPS, and I have to raise it because... It, it is now, uh, it is a name that is emblazoned in history because of the role that they played in the 2016 election. They were the uh, firm that commissioned the, the Steele dossier yep. uh, that has gotten so much attention. And you, you're very conversant with that because once you joined the firm, they wrote a book called Crime in Progress about the election and their role in it. What are your reflections looking back? Because, you know, the, the fundamental, if you ask people generally, the sense is that was all garbage. <laughs> uh, that was all untrue. It was all politically motivated. But you worked with the two guys over there who were veterans of the uh, journal and uh, among the most distinguished investigative reporters in the country. Yeah. 
you know, it was a fascinating turn for me. I walked in the door, I think, three days before BuzzFeed actually published the so-called dossier. Um, I was not there when they commissioned it or did any of that work. I had actually signed on with them on election day, which, of course, in the middle of that day, everyone had the expectations that the election would turn out a different way. You know, the work that Fusion did, quite to the contrary to the dossier itself or, the, or whatever reputation it has gotten, is was markedly different than than the dossiers on method, which was, you know, Chris Steele going out and basically getting raw intelligence. Well, tapping sources and talking to people. And Fusion's work model has always been to um, to do very rigorous, open source, very verifiable, document based research, and that's what it continues to do. And as all of the work that Fusion did looking at Trump outside of the dossier was very much that way. And as we've come to understand. Not only was uh, Trump and his people very much interacting with the Russians all that year, of course, and Putin trying to do what he did during that election year, but, you know, Trump's own business past, going back to the very early foundations of um, his company, have been sketchy at best and worthy of a lot of close attention, um, which Fusion helped give, along with many reputable um, reputable news organizations. It's... Uh, Quite a story that we continue to see ongoing. The thing that is uh, remembered is the sort of prurient allegations in the yeah. Steele dossier that haven't been proven out. I mean, how do you reflect on that? I guess I shouldn't, I don't want to lead you. Yeah, some of the you know, the most prurient things, as you say, one of the things that stick the most in people's minds. I mean, you know, it is the fact, I will say one thing about Chris Steele. He was the one who raised the flag on what was going on with Russia and its efforts to get involved in the election, I think even before the FBI was really onto that in early June of that year, just before the huge email dumps and all this stuff that occurred that we saw play out through that summer. So there was also an element of prescience there. It's, these things get muddled as we look back on things. It was a fascinating stretch. I then left there at the end of 2019 with my ambitions being I was going to take a time off. I was going to take this walk to New York and kind of do almost like an adult gap year. And then, of course, uh, COVID kind of botched that up a little bit and delayed my plans for a year. Well, not just COVID, but you also had a kind of catastrophic event or potentially catastrophic event in your own life. Uh, talk about that. I'm not only very open to talk about it, I welcome talking about it because it played into my my own psyche and my own um, life plan so mm -hmm. so strongly and, and, and in a weird way so well. So in 2017, I got one of those diagnoses. Nobody likes to go see a doctor and have him utter the word cancer. And it was a fairly advanced cancer that had come out of nowhere like these things do. And, and a deadly cancer. Very, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, it was one of the worst esophageal cancer. And you know, when I looked up the numbers, I was something like, you know, 12% survival, five-year survival rate. And that was quite a, it was a four-year experience, essentially, where I had a relapse a year and a half later after going through all this stuff through that fall. And um, I hate to be one of those people that too loudly trumpets the benefits of a, a cancer diagnosis if you, if you survive it. But in my case, it kind of did wonders for my sense of um, how to allot my own time and, and how I saw the world. And by the time I came out the other end, which was in a lot of ways really just before I set off on the walk, I was kind of a changed person in, in many ways that I was appreciative of. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, back to the show. You know my wife Susan very well. Yeah, she had cancer in the uh, in the '90s, and uh, one of the things we did when she, when she got the diagnosis is we bought a farm in Michigan, <laughs> and it was ramshackle and needed tons of work and so on. Part of the reason we bought it was because we wanted to focus on a goal beyond the treatment. How much was this book, which you had had in mind? How much did it become? sort of a goal of yours that I'm going to get through this and I'm going to and I'm going to take this walk and I'm going to realize and I'm going to realize what are things that I had deferred that I now are going to put on the front burner. Yeah. I think it was a big motivating factor and not only that it, it just helped um kind of condition my my psyche and my attitude towards stepping out my door the day that I set out on this walk uh, as a as a different person and with a very distinct frame of mind and a, and a very distinct sensibility towards what I was going to encounter. Um, I mean, we can talk about it some more going ahead here, but it, it became a kind of time out of time. And what does that mean? You know, it's fascinating not to get too esoteric here, but the, um, the Greeks have two words for time. There, there's chronos, which is what we you know, think of as chronological time, kind mm-hmm. of mechanical time. And they have an expression called kairos, which is a, a kind of time that's like revelatory time, that's some um, transformational time. It's the sort of time that leaves a stronger imprint on your memory. I think it's, you know, kind of the time that we tend to a lot to vacations or to those mo- magical moments that stick in your mind decades later. And the fascinating thing about the whole concept is this walk, the 26 days of it, it all took place in that kind of Kairos sort of time. It was every, um, basically every minute of it still to this day, two years later, has this clarity about it in my mind that no 26-day stretch in my life has where I could, <laughs> I could bore you endlessly with stories about every day. And it leaves an imprint in part because I had sort of stepped out my door into sort of like going into Narnia through the back of the wardrobe in the C.S. Lewis book, you know, into this kingdom that's just outside all of our doors. But it was because I went about it in a certain way. Before we get to the walk itself, right before the walk, there was an event that was a watershed event in our history, I think is fair to say. 
which was the insurrection hmm. at the Capitol. And you know, one of the things that this one of the really uh, extraordinary things about this book is that it takes us back to the beginning of American history, and you know, some of the ideals that drove it, and it also speaks to our common humanity. Yeah. But this was quite different on January 6th. There was, you know, a sense of aggrievement and division and so on. And you were there. You you mm-hmm. live not far from the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what, what did you see and how did that shape your thinking as you set off on this walk? Uh, you know, let me just step back a tiny bit before I get to that. You know, I was going to go out my door on the 29th of March of 2020. Everything that came along that month made that impossible. I waited exactly a year to do it. And you know what happened between that year? We had we were slammed by COVID. George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. All of those uh, social justice protests and riots took place across the country. We had the spate of um, statues being torn down and a real, real debate in our country about the nature of our beginnings, of our past, of our national story. A deep discussion, which I think should be ongoing about who do we honor and who do we want to dishonor or, or forget about from our past? We had a disputed election. We had the whole kind of nature of truth um, you know, being called into question. And then we had those events on January 6th, with which I walked from my house and watched play out live. I didn't, of course, go inside the Capitol, but I watched it as a witness. And so by the time I walked out my door, I was walking past a Capitol that was still ringed by razor wire with National Guard troops around it. And it really drove home to me how I was truly stepping into a historical context with all of those questions that I wanted to think about, which is, what are we collectively? What is our story? Who are the founders? Who, which are the founders that we should honor? How do, what do we make of this time? And you know, are our best days as a country um, still ahead of us, or are they distinctly behind us? And, you know, the, the January 6th events were just one of a tableau of different things that really set the stage for me personally as I wandered um, right past the Capitol. So let's, so let's talk about the walk and just, just a, a couple of minutes on the sort of preparation for it. Because there isn't like, uh, oh yeah, I'm going to walk to New York. Uh, I'm let me grab a walking map. <laughs> you really spent a lot of time considering where you were going, where you were going to stop. You know how much you were going to do each day, and the history of the areas through which you were going to walk. So talk about preparing for this. You know there were really, I guess I would say three forms of preparation. The first one was through that year uh, when I had to postpone it. I, I immersed myself in dozens and dozens of the travel logs that so many people had written in the early years of our republic, 1820s and 30s. Alexis de Tocqueville, Charles Dickens being among the best known. But people who had come to America to look it over, wonder if it was going to survive, wonder what it was going to become. And I really um, sort of absorbed myself into those narratives, and, and I took a very similar point of view in a way when I walked out my door. The other form of preparation was, of course, physical. I did a lot of walking with a heavy pack on my back and that kind of thing for, for months beforehand. And then the third was the determining the route I was going to take and where I was going to sleep every night and who I wanted to meet with. And in that one, I really decided I was going to go 
due north of Washington. I wasn't going to go up I-95. I wasn't going to walk up the Jersey Shore. I was going to go up along the, across the Mason-Dixon line, up into Pennsylvania, across into Lancaster County, one of the great era regions of experimentation in American life, and cutting all the way across to Valley Forge into Philadelphia, etc. It was kind of a arcing, somewhat roundabout way to get to New York City, where I really wanted to emphasize certain places that were important to me, that told stories, but also important to us collectively. Civil War battle sites, places in the Revolutionary War, you know, Underground Railroad sites, rail beds that were important, canals, the whole bit. And um, so there was a lot of advanced planning, including the people I wanted to meet. I met a lot of people serendipitously, Mm -hmm. which was fantastic. And there were a lot of people I met by planning. Yeah. Well, let's talk about both. First of all, how much, (laughs) let me ask you, but just again, to set the stage, you had this rucksack (laughs) on your back. How much did that weigh? You know, I very intentionally went super light. I had no, I decided I was not going to camp. I had no tent. I had no sleeping bag. I stayed mainly in Airbnbs and inns and things like that. And my backpack was about 17 pounds. And the heaviest thing I had in it was, was your laptop, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Huh. My laptop. Yeah, exactly. Now you had that laptop. Did you, I know you were sending correspondences to your friends uh, throughout the trip. Was it your, always your intention that this would be a book? The original idea to walk to New York was not a book idea. It was just a, dang, I wonder what it would be like if I were to do it. It became, by the time I walked out the door, a book idea. I realized in the time in between that there was just so much richness in along the way, and I was going to mine it, I think, in a way like no one ever has between those two cities. And I guess I was competing a bit with all those folks I was reading about in the 1830s and 40s and stuff. I was like, okay, I'm going to try to do the best account of a slow walk between these two places of any that I've read. So yes, by the time I walked out, I fully intended to do that. So the stories in this book of the encounters that you had are fantastic. And in some ways, the most arresting stories are the stories of your encounters with everyday people, not people of note, particularly not politicians. Or Talk about that. And what you, what you learn from these encounters. On the second day, I'm just on the true outskirts of Washington. And by a series of events I won't just describe right now, I run into this older couple, Mennonite couple, walking down a small lane. And it comes to pass that I mention that I'm heading to this town called Ephrata in Pennsylvania. And they immediately brighten and they say, we used to live there, near there in a little house on on Crooked Lane next to these people that we haven't seen in years, and we're wondering how they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, look, I'm going there. I will bring good tidings of your well-being to them and pass along your regards. And they were sort of astonished that I would do that. And I did it. I got there eight days later. And it became, I said immediately when I left them to myself, I said, wow, I just experienced a parable like something out of the New Testament, you know? And that day itself, I encountered several of what I came to see of as parables, one-off encounters with people that were pregnant with meaning that others of us can detect and feel. And, you know, I think it was the next day I ran into this guy, this black guy who was out at the end of his drive getting his garbage can in, and he said, hey, where are you going? And I, I said, oh, I'm going to New York, and I live in the capital. And he 
immediately, his name was Ted, embarked on this incredibly great Thurman. I loved that. Yeah, it, this was the guy in Randallstown. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. yes. And I called it the, the parable of the tuning fork. He said, I know what you're doing. You're, you're trying to put yourself in tune. The whole nation is out of tune and out of joint, and you're feeling it. And if you can get yourself in tune, you will get the nation in tune. And I was like, Ted, are you really putting that sort of heaping that burden on me that, you know, I will have to put the whole country in, in harmony. And he said, yes, that's exactly, this is a holy walk. He said, <laughs> it was right before yeah. Easter. It was then. So there were so many of these encounters like that, that just were just marvelous in their own way. I mean, I, I love that. I can't remember whether it was him or you, but the idea that when, when you tune in a radio, you get the music or you get the static. <laughs> he said, so hopefully your walk will tune you. When you hit the tuning fork, it'll be, it, will be give, it will give the right vibration that yields healing. That's pretty profound for a guy taking his garbage out. Yeah, and in that case, I actually, he was about to start, and I said, hey, Ted, do you mind if I hit my phone record? Because I, I think I, I got a feeling I got to get this. You know? And he said, no, go ahead. And it was, it was a fantastic sermon that just there at curbside. And you know, I, I, I met a, a Mennonite auctioneer who was... Um, you know, very Trumpy and had very distinct, very old-fashioned views of how the world should be organized. And, you know, it was snowing out and, and I had to get some directions because I was lost from him. And he invited me into this barn and we talked for a while. And, you know, despite his views, it certainly didn't align with my views. I found Ken Keeney is his name to be yes. fascinating. York, Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he was an auctioneer and his bar, that barn was filled with all these amazing older tractors that he really loved. And he was showing me what made them marvelous. And, you know, to me, it was just a great lesson that if you're in one place, kind of a common ground setting with another American, another fellow human being, yeah, okay, you may disagree on some things, but you're going to find some things that you like, that you have in common, that that person, you know, something about him or her that is funny. And, we got on really well, and it just. And when I walked away from there, I was like, you know, we all need these kind of encounters more often. We yeah. need to mix it up more. We need to get out in the world more. The truth of the matter is that if your only interaction with people who have different points of view is how they are described to you on Facebook, it is a poisoning kind of yeah. experience. So the ability, I mean, I look, I have a lot of neighbors in rural Michigan who uh, I'm sure have very different of views than mine, but they're still good neighbors. Sure. Yeah. But it's almost, we are so hardened in our silos that to step outside of it is, to step, step outside of them is uh, considered sort of a dangerous and unnatural act. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, we, where instead, where we should humanize, of course, we now demonize. And um, in some ways, this walk was kind of my effort to humanize. You did meet it's so interesting to me in the same community of York, Pennsylvania, you also met the mayor who uh, you, you went from uh, Ken Kenny to a guy who could have been imagined by Ken Kesey. <laughs> Describe the mayor of York, Pennsylvania and your interaction with him. You know, Michael Halfrick, who uh, I just actually saw just recently, I'm going to see in a couple of days. He, I, I described as if there are 14,000 mayors in all the land, Michael Helfrick has to be among the most unusual. He, um, you know, was once in the Rainbow family and talked to me openly about all the times he had dropped acid in the woods in Oregon and various places. And he now lives in a house built in 1767, if I have it right, and is an ardent follower of Thomas Paine and 
When I went into his house, almost everything in it was from the 18th century, including all of the collected works of Thomas Paine, which were almost all printed when Paine was still alive, essentially. And, you know, I, I said to him, Michael, when was America last great? And he said, uh, 1791, when the Battle of Yorktown was over and we had ended our war with the British and we became a divided and fact fractious country. <laughs> And I was like, wow, we weren't even a country then. And we were, you know, our best days were already behind us. You, you made a point of that he was an extraordinary character. You, you made a point of going to the Mason-Dixon line, which has almost mythic importance in American history. Explain why you went there and what you found. I, of course, had no choice but to cross it because that's what you cross when you go north. And if I could just make a call out to whoever's listening that to just the sort of vital importance of the going to the places themselves and not just sort of driving and jumping out of your car, but kind of arriving to them at them by foot, contextualizing them. It just, to me anyway, it just was resonant with so much meaning because this is a, a border between North and South that for, you know, decades and decades had such incredible significance, particularly to the enslaved populations of the South. And, you know, I thought about that for hours as I walked toward it and Along these roads, it would have been the same roads that somebody would have skirted along on their way to try to get out of there. Um, and then when I got to the line itself, I found this incredible 1830s German-built farmhouse that at that time anyway was abandoned. And, um, you know, right underneath the front porch of it ran the line itself. And it was just, the whole thing was so fascinating just to ponder the person who had built that farmhouse, how the line between you know, at least the theoretical line between slavery and um, freedom had run right underneath his front porch. And then just to look at the sort of the pride and, and um, beauty of the structures of the barn and all these other things that he, these people had built, you know, the different kinds of hinges that were all clearly handmade. And it was just a great example of lived history right there under your fingertips, you know, and, and it was a fantastic hour or so I spent there. I mean, one of the reasons this has mythic importance in American history is that it was sort of a dividing line between free states and slave states. So it's so interesting that a house can sit on top of that line. You know, Lincoln said a house divided against itself <laughs> cannot stand, but uh, there's this house and it sits on both lines. And it does speak to the fact that there are transcendent things. I mean, obviously the battle over slavery was a defining battle for our country. And yet there were people on both sides of that line who, well, they had vehement disagreements over that, shared qualities as human beings. So the symbolism of a house standing on both sides of the line yeah. is really something. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. 
You went to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. As a history buff, what struck me was you visited two grave sites. Speaking of the war and slavery and so on, one was of uh, the 15th president of the United States, James Buchanan, uh, who I think deservedly is viewed as a disastrous president who opened the door to what would come, which was the Civil War, uh, through his leadership or lack of leadership. And then Thaddeus Stevens, who uh, represented Pennsylvania in the Congress, and who was an outspoken opponent of slavery, both from the same town. That was another magical moment where I literally walked into the town of Lancaster as at a time, as I described in the book, that these sort of tectonic plates are shifting, and they were just taking the name of James Buchanan in elementary school off that school. Um, this There was the meticulously preserved house that James Buchanan had lived in, and his reputation was plummeting, while the house that Thaddeus Stevens, who was truly one of the founders of our second founding after the Civil War, he was the one, really one of the prime forces that pushed Lincoln to do the Emancipation Proclamation to let blacks into the military during the Civil War. And he was a cantankerous character. Yeah. And a really extraordinary person who's who deserves much, much more notoriety, much more fame than he has now. And, you know, one of the points I make in passing, but I think is an important one, you know, when we all look back on history, we like to put ourselves in it from the point of view of the good people. So all of us assume that if we had been around we would have been staunch abolitionists. Well, the reality is they were a tiny portion of the population. And I I really think we should not only own our James Buchanans, but we should realize that inside of a lot of us is probably more James Buchanan than Thaddeus Stevens. It's not easy to be Thaddeus Stevens and out on vanguard morally in the way that he was. It's often a lonely place to be. And um, I think we all need to be a little more humble and realizing that not only that but a lot of times the person that seems the most sort of obstreperous or, or even um, um overly loud or obnoxious those people are often on to something and thaddeus stevens was very much of one of those people so that was a fa- fantastic day just sort of seeing that in this case um the balance is starting to, to write and um stevens is beginning to get the due he deserves you also visited a school in lancaster that uh <laughs> made an impression on you. Yeah, I mean, that is such a fantastic story. I won't tell it at length, but I just came up the road the next day and, and um, saw this amazing game of softball being played by these young women and young men at this school. The young women all dressed in these long floral dresses and playing the most incredibly aggressive, bona fide game of softball I think I've ever played, seen played. And then they we started talking and this teacher came over and they all invited me inside and they wanted to sing some hymns to me. So I went downstairs and they sang these two fantastic hymns to me. And, you know, I was with them for maybe half an hour altogether. I've remained in touch with that teacher, Neil Weaver. I'm going to see them in a the couple of days. They're going to do a, well, a kind of book event, but they're also going to sing in that same place. Again, I, I went up to a Christmas concert at the end of last year that they invited me to. And it's kind of extraordinary when you can walk out your door over 26 days and form 10, 12 bona fide friendships with people that you've remained in contact with since then. Especially people who are completely different than you, in, on at least uh, uh, on the surface, leading different lives, lives that you probably couldn't even imagine. 
Profoundly so. You know, and I had a discussion actually in the basement of the church after they sang to me with Neil Weaver, this teacher, and I said, um, tell me a little bit about the Mennonite faith. And in doing that, he quoted this line from St. Paul to the Romans, and I'm not exactly like a big Bible reading guy, but the line kind of just like lit up in my head as, as really kind of the motto of the whole walk. And it is, um, do not conform to the world but transform yourself through a renewal of your mind. And when he said that, I was just wow. like, wait, wait, say that again? You should have had that in your pocket when you set out on this walk. You know, the, I know. And you know, it's funny. There were so many times that I came upon people that mentioned lines or phrases or whatever, where I had to say, wait, what did you just say? And <laughs> that was one of them. Because that whole concept of don't let the world, you know, form you, mm-hmm. don't, don't conform to it, but transform yourself through a renewal of your mind and, and um, you know, something we should all constantly attempt to do. And it's something that I very avidly attempted to do through the whole of the walk. This goes back to maybe more mundane stuff, but I don't think, but I think somehow not, because you got at some point caught in a snowstorm and your phone had died. Yeah. And you were trying to get to your next stop and you really didn't have a clue where to go. Uh, and, uh, I guess you knocked on a door. No, that was when I met the guy Ken Keeney, the auctioneer. Oh, he was the it. guy who he was. Yeah, yeah. That was the snowstorm. Yeah, exactly. That was the snowstorm. And at the and, end of our conversation, I said to him, uh, "Ken, do you know why we met and had this conversation?" And he said, "No, I don't." I said, "It's because my phone died, and I I needed to find a person to give me directions." And there you were working in this barn, and I appreciate that. <laughs> and you know that again, uh, there again was one of those kind of parable like aspects to the whole story that I, I really loved. This MAGA guy yeah. saved you from being lost in a snowstorm is essentially the headline there. You know, there was another guy, this is jumping way ahead, but I was in New Jersey in a very Trump area of New Jersey on the other side of I-95. And I'm walking along and I look over and there's a driveway with this truck out front and these flags flying and MAGA stuff all over. And for a second, I'm kind of like, God, it'd be sort of interesting to have a full-blown discussion with with this guy. And that exact minute, he walks out of his house on his way to give, have his own walk. And he says to me, um, uh, where, what are you doing here? Where are you going? And I said, well, I'm, I live near the Capitol. I'm walking to New York. And, you know, there had been a little bit of an issue the whole way about kind of hospitality and who offers what to whom. Yeah. And the minute I said what I was doing, he immediately said, can I get you a water, a beer, a clementine? Yeah, a which is really bar? interesting because at the beginning of the book, one of your first experiences was with a guy in, in, in the suburbs of Washington in Maryland, and you were passing through this well-to-do community, and you stopped and you asked the guy, you had a canteen with you, uh, you know, where you could get some water, and he basically directed you like miles away and said, you know, we're, we're a little suspicious of you know, unkempt strangers coming through our... So, what a contrast. That was uh, on the day of parables. I call that the parable of the empty water bottle, where he <laughs> he couldn't see fit to fill my water bottle out of his hose. Yeah, no, th- this guy, I guess this was in East Brunswick, New Jersey, where you had this 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 ladder, almost at the end of your walk, the one you described with the Trumper who... Uh, and you you had a long conversation with him. You know, and you would understand well, because you knew these people from your time with the uh, with President Obama, that his story was one of those great odyssey stories where I mean, he hadn't been keen on on Bush, um, 
when Obama came along, he, what he actually said to me in the driveway was, the white guys hadn't done a great job of it, so I figured it was time <laughs> to give the black guy a chance. And, yeah. you know, he had supported Obama when Trump came along. He himself was a person who nursed a lot of different kind of grievances and gripes about things, which he aired many of them to me when I was in his driveway. And Trump kind of appealed to that sort of kicking at your critics thing. And that was why one of the reasons that he had supported Trump, it was just a fascinating sort of odyssey that he had taken. You had to get across the Hudson and you essentially meandered your way into a yacht club to try and find someone who would take <laughs> you across. You found a guy named Stu Conway to help you uh, finish that important leg of the journey. Well, tell me about him. Well, actually, that was to get from Perth Amboy across to Staten Island. I had to get across the Arthur Kill. I see. You know, that was a great moment where, you know, one of the things I talk about a fair bit in the book is kind of the whole, um, you know, idea of privilege. And, you know, I, I have a lot of privilege that came my way. Um, I had relatively little to um, fear um being a white mm -hmm. guy of my age walking down the road. But, um, you know, in this case, I had to figure out how I was going to get across this body of water. And so I made my way onto the Raritan Yacht Club dock and I told the folks there what I was trying to do. And they sort of brightened to the whole idea because I, um, you know, was off on this lark of an adventure. And so they said, oh, we think we know a guy. And so they put forward this guy, Stu Conway, and he drove an hour in the next morning from his house to take me across on a launch to the other side. And that was, um, was just a great thing. And, you know, when it comes to the whole kind of belonging, did I belong on that pier at that yacht club? No. The only reason that I kind of did is I was often an adventurer. And those are the sort of things that those people, sailors and the like, understand. And they kind of took to that. You wrote the most durable form of belonging starts oddly with solitude. And I was interested in that. Explain that. You know, I think a lot of it is the more comfortable any of us are with ourselves and the more sort of transferable we feel we are from environment to environment, the more easily we feel like we belong in different places. And I, you know, if there's anything you can do to make a person feel welcome is to make them feel that they belong in the place that they are. And I stepped into a lot of foreign settings along the way and, um, you know, the barn, a Mennonite farrier who was shooing a horse to various bars and things along the way. And along that way, people by and large made me feel welcome and feel like I belonged there. And that, that was a good thing. Yeah. You know, your reportorial history probably was helpful in this regard. Absolutely. No, that makes a huge difference. You know, as you have also, I've done yeah. a lot of this, just kind of talking to people along the way. as a And reporter. dropping into places you've never experience before. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, I just want to close by asking you a few personal things. Your brother, Kevin, was dying during this walk. You were very close. You were one of five boys, I guess, right? Uh, four boys and one girl, one sister. Yeah. And you were in contact with him. You wanted him to vicariously share this walk. You know, my brother, Kevin, was a fantastic soul in so many ways. And told amazing stories, experienced things so vividly, and did a lot of his own adventurous walking. And, you know, he got the worst kind of cancer there is, glioblastoma, which goes, you know, into the brain and almost nobody survives it. And it basically slowly rid him of his ability to talk well or to walk really at all. And the fact that I was walking and talking throughout the year that he ended up dying in certainly gave a different backdrop to the walk. And I've shared various moments of with him along the way. And 
Uh, I talk about some of this uh, in the book itself. It, it certainly made um, a lot of it um, a lot more vibrant just thinking about him. Speaking about talking, I've known you, as I said, for a long time, and you are a guy with a deep, resonant bass voice. People can hear that your voice is, is a bit raspy now. So that was a mystery that came along the way after the walk, right? Uh, no, it happened beforehand. I, I got bit by a tick that gave me Lyme disease and botched up one of my vocal cords. So it was another one of those lessons where, um, you know, I, for a while I was actually not very able to talk at all. I'm certainly, it's gotten a lot better since You then. said that made you a better listener, which it you did. thought was another lesson. So you've drawn all these lessons from your challenges, yep. really. Tell me how that has changed you as a person. I think it's just uh, made me filled with a lot more, like, true kind of ongoing gratitude about a lot of things. And, uh, you know, there's a great moment, I'd say, in the book where it's at the very end and I meet a friend of mine and we walk up Fifth Avenue and we go, we, we go into Central Park and we arrive at the Angel of the Waters, which is that fantastic statue um, at the Bethesda Fountain. And um, this friend of mine says that a Hebrew prayer that is a very ancient prayer. I kind of look at it as like the foundational prayer of all prayers. And it basically goes something like, Lord, thank you for creating me, for sustaining me, mm -hmm. and for allowing me to be here at this present moment. You know, thank you for, for making this moment possible. Yes, yes, yes. It's a, we, it's a, it's a, it is the foundational prayer. Yeah, it just sort of incorporates all of it, right? Creation, sustenance, and just thank God for being here. And in a lot of ways, I think the travail, I don't even want to say travails, but the experiences that I've had over the last few years has just kind of compounded that sense of thankfulness for being here. And it's a great state of mind to be in. Yeah. It's a little bit of, uh, I like to say, I'm distinctly living on what I look at as bonus time. And um, there's no time as good as bonus time. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. The ability to value every day and to make the most of every day is something, you know, we're we're all basically living under a death sentence and we don't know when that sentence is going to be enacted or is going to be executed but too often we we act as if we're going to live forever uh we do and and we miss so much of life that way and part of why i loved your book is that this was your defiant statement that i'm not going to submit i'm going to appreciate every day however many days I have. And what do you hope that people will get from this book? You know, one of the things I'm doing out in the hustings, so to speak, is really wanting to kind of drive home the fact that, yeah, okay, I did this thing, and I'll talk to you about this thing I did, but I really uh, urge other people to do their version of it. And it doesn't have to be a three-week-plus walk to New York, but some version where you really go out and look closely at some aspect of the country and really... Um, sort of honor it and, and see it for the complexity that it, that it has. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, I like to talk about is just kind of granting yourself the freedom to be wondrous about things and, and sort of shirk or shed cynicism or, or whatever mm -hmm. it is that kind of prevents a lot of us from just seeing things the way they are, at least in my mind, which is, um, you know, it's when I get to the Susquehanna and the Delaware and these things that I'm like, these are amazing rivers, and I'm going to just talk to you a bit about how amazing these bodies of water are. And some of it is just the attitude that you bring to these things otherwise seem 
kind of commonplace, right? Oh yeah, I know about that. And kind of, you know, going about it with a fresher eye or fresher outlook. I call the book A Walk of Memory and Renewal, and it's a national memory. It's also a bit of a personal memory, uh, and it's both a personal and a national renewal. And I, you know, the thing that comes about if you set out attentively in an undistracted way to go on a long walk like this, not listening to podcasts or music in your wait, ear. Wait, 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 wait a second. Now you're going too far. All right. Uh, <laughs> it, it just has an accumulative effect over time. And, you know, by the time I got to New York, I, I was in many ways a changed being in large part just because of the additive effect of what happens to you and how you see the world if after many weeks, in my case, you're just paying attention to a single spring, to the people you meet, to the lay of the land, and the story that our country tells as you go. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's just can be a miraculous thing just to go out for a long walk. That's all. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Uh, well, listen, I look forward to taking one with you. It's uh, American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. It is an uplifting read and uh, lots of important lessons there, not just about life, but about our country. So Neil King, it's great to see you. I look forward to sitting down soon and sharing more stories over, over a beer. I look forward to that too. And this has been a great pleasure, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.